Welcome to Real Life, the program that talks about the life of real estate in the Hamptons and beyond. The people, the places, and the things that are the pulse and heartbeat of real estate with your host, broker associate of Sotheby's International Realty, John Christopher. Welcome back to Real Life, and this is your host, John Christopher. And today I have uh, the top element producer, uh, Martha Gunderson. Hi, Martha. How are you today? Hi, John. How are you? I'm Good doing really great now that you're on the program. We had some uh, technical difficulties uh, prior to this uh, recording. But and in any event, uh, before we talk about the market, let's just talk about you. You grew up in Beverly, Mass., right? Correct? I was born in Beverly, Mass., and I oh, grew you were up born. Yeah, and I grew up in a little town outside of Boston. Um, but that's ancient history. <laughs> well, let me ask you how you got from that little town outside of Boston to the Hamptons, besides driving, of course. Well, I came down here through Shelter Island, and when I came drove through Shelter Island and I saw the beautiful trees and the beautiful environment and drove, you know, cause you take the ferry from Massachusetts and uh, come across shelter. Island, and then we um, had rented a house. We, we didn't rent a house. We were caretakers of what's now um, Itzhak Perlman's house on Georgica road. And we stayed there for a couple of winters. And I said, this is where I want to live. And that was it's it. Just, and that was it. That, that is so cool. So what was it like when you first started? Okay, let me ask you the question. What made you, to, what led you into real estate? Um, I think the love of the homes in this area and the love of the environment uh, where the homes are, so close to the ocean and the bays. And there's a diversity of architecture. Uh, there's a lot of unique talent. I went to art school. So I had a love of uh you know, anything that was artistic and beautiful. And as you know, like the whole culture here um, attracted because of the light between the bay and the ocean attracted a lot of people who uh, painted, sculpted. Um, and it's perfect environment for anyone that loves beauty. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that one. Um, what was it like when you first started in real estate? Did you have a mentor? Um, I had started in real estate before briefly in Huntington and I wasn't in love with that area like I was out here. Um, I guess a lot of the people that, uh, I followed and listened to, I listened very closely to people that were successful and there were a lot of them. Some of them are not working anymore, but I think of a few Sotheby's agents, <laughs> And uh, some of the top people, you would just like you would go to an open house. So you would go and you would listen to them. And if you listen to them, you could pick up on um, a lot. So, as you know, real estate, you're an independent contractor. So you have to it's like learning by going. It's a school in itself. Um, you go through real estate school, but you only learn the basics there. Um, then you go and you practice it. So it was like a law practice. I mean, I had a partner who was a trial attorney and I learned a lot about law from that person who was a former partner in real estate. 
But I think through real estate, you you really learn by doing boots on the ground, looking at houses, learning about zoning, learning about people. Right. Now, um, you're very fortunate. You have your son, Peter, is, is working with you. I know quite a few agents uh, that would love to have their kids working with them. How did you bring him into the fold? Well, first I paid for college for him. <laughs> and then he, and you said, okay, pay me back or come into real estate. <laughs> well, he was pre-med and he decided, um, you know, in order to become a doctor, you really, really had to have an empathetic, you know, uh, I would say uh, desire to help people and I think helping people as a medical doctor is different than helping people in real estate. He still has that desire to help people, but he also has um, a mutual love of the area. He's a big surfer, and his lifestyle uh, as a doctor would have been different than a lifestyle in real estate out on the East End. So I think I was fortunate enough to talk him into staying here because he went to a school, uh, UCLA, on the West Coast. He met his wife there. And then she came back here to live here, and they both live here. And uh, she's a teacher, and he's trying real estate. But he's, you know, he's taking his, his, um, you know, he's he's really practicing it now, and he's he's quite good at it. He's a lot smarter than I am. Yeah, but he has a great teacher. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Thank what you. What do they say? It's always great when the student. Uh, exceeds the uh the teacher so i'm sure yeah. that's going to be that's going to happen sometime you know but which i hope sure. you know god bless um yeah. there's a lot of kids graduating this summer what kind of advice would you uh, give to those thinking about going into real estate um i would say it looks easy it can be easy but mostly it's persistence and um in difficult times don't give up because markets come and go and if you are, you'll always be busy. You'll always be busy and you'll always be learning, but you're not necessarily always going to make money. So save some money for the difficult times because um, markets go up and down. Right. I recall, uh, when did the market, we had a, a crash in the, um, was it uh, 08? I think it was in the, some, yeah. some real estate, right? It, there were some realtors that uh, didn't prepare. They didn't save. They didn't have a little nest egg and. Um, yeah, they're not in the business anymore. So yeah, it's a, it's a good point. Um, what kind of qualities do you look for in a person uh, that you think sh they should have to be successful in real estate? Uh, patience, um, uh, non-reactiveness, uh, put your self-interest aside and listen to uh, the person. And, and also you have to read people and be able to respond to their their needs. Um, and you also have to be educated about your market and be make sure that you have a value to that person. Um, don't waste their time. You'll be successful if you do all those things. You know your market um, and, and you practice it. And just with every day, you get a little better at it. Great advice. Uh, you know, everybody thinks that real estate is a cushy job. Uh, you make your mm. own hours, et cetera. Do you mm -hmm. think there are any downsides to real estate besides going be broke? <laughs> <laughs> I think the downsides are that you work 24 seven. And I think what people are doing um, now um, 
is they're still working 24-7, but you can work more in a remote fashion. And also if you are like myself um, in more of a team or a group, then you'll have probably a lot more flexibility. So I think that's what uh, a lot of these, what you don't want to do as a real estate professional is promise something and not deliver. You want to be able to answer the phone and answer the questions and be available to people at the drop of a, you know, it's their time that you have to work around, not your own time. Again, great advice. Um, So let's cut to the chase. Uh, How's the market in in the Hamptons? (laughs) I'm sure Um, people, that's what everybody asks the question. What's happening, Martha? Tell us, tell us. (laughs) I will say the market's busy, but it's not, um, people are not making decisions. And the what the government has proposed to do is working they're killing um the golden egg so to speak but they're doing that on purpose they're trying to slow down the economy they're trying to slow down people spending money and they're doing that to reduce inflation as we know um so i would say the market is um with rentals is significantly down the market with sales is also down um, certain price points are consistent, but I would say, uh, generally speaking, uh, people are not making decisions about okay. buying and not making right. decisions. So it's not transactional. There was, there was a recent article in the uh, in the journal saying that uh, a lot of high end homes are languishing on the uh, on the market for longer periods of time uh, as yes. compared to last year nationwide. Is that happening here in the Hamptons? Oh, big time. Yeah, of course. Um, And during the pandemic, as you know, um, you know, everything's old. Uh, And I think a lot of the people that bought um, also put their houses up for rent. And then as a pandemic, as you know, uh, eased and we don't we're not in the pandemic anymore. People are resorting to traveling and trying to rent their houses so that they can travel to Europe. So I think probably Europe is a lot more crowded than it is here, even though it certainly is crowded in July and August. So um, I think there's still a lot of people looking and hoping to buy a home out here, but a lot of people um, during the pandemic, uh, I would say that the market was a hundred percent more busy than normal. So we're feeling the effects of the slowing economy, but that will change eventually with the government um, and so on. Right, exactly. Um, so you're saying the rental market was different than compared to last year, right? The rental market is much different compared to the pandemic because any any people were renting things, as you know, sight unseen. And now the rental market, um, the, the people who bought houses were promised that they could rent them to help carry their mortgages. So that person was taken out of, the renting market they were taking out as a tenant. They now became landlords. There's less people renting this year because a lot of people started traveling. So there's an abundance of inventory. But I will say this, if you have a really, really nice house that you keep up and is clean and new and neat, you're always going to get a tenant if you price it right. Right. Well, um, I know because I quite a few uh, clients have called and said, you know, I've rented my house for umpteen years and all this year is like nobody 
nobody's knocking on the door. Do you have any advice to the these landlords that are thinking about, okay, I'll rent next year and what they should do if they're going to rent next year? I, I'd say make it, um, you know, look at your house. And if it's a hotel type experience that you would want to go to, think of yourself going to your house. Think of a hotel that you would want to stay in and um, happy to, you know, uh, rent. Think of it as a, a hotel-like experience. And then ask around about how your house compares to the house that rented or didn't rent. And make sure you're the next one that is priced right and is updated, has, you know, clean linens and um, no clutter. Uh, you know, you have the appropriate um, gas grill for cooking. A lot of people like pools. But even if you don't have a pool, just make sure your house is, is um, well taken care of. You don't want right. to go in. Right. That's not true. Right. Uh, I think that's a great analogy. Uh, make your, your home into a uh, hotel room and people will be knocking down the door. Um, yeah. What kind of advice do you give buyers that are coming into the market since the inventory is so, so low in the next uh, 10 minutes, 10, uh, 10 seconds? <laughs> I, would say, I would say value right now because you'll find it, particularly in um, uh little areas make sure that you work with an experienced broker and make sure you um, educate yourself on the costs of transaction and what it costs for taxes etc 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 advice and enjoy and enjoy (laughs) exact that's very important uh if someone had more questions for you martha how could they contact you um my cell phone number is 631-405-8436 and it's martha.gunderson at element.com. Martha Gunderson from Element, thank you so much for taking the time and, and educating us. This is John Christopher for Real Life Broadcasting on the only NPR station on Long Island, WLIW 88.3 FM. Please stay right where you are since we'll be right back after the short break. back to real life and this is your host john christopher and today i have with me ralph pacifico who is uh the founder of pacifico engineering hi ralph how are you today oh i'm doing great today john thanks that's fantastic you know i got uh, the first question i have to i wanted to start off you know inventory is so low has that had any effect on your business i mean are you still out there doing a lot of uh inspections well well, it it has affected the, the volume of inspections so if I go back, you know, after when COVID hit, it was, you know, it died for a short period of time. I don't remember, a month or two months. And then it picked up like crazy and crazy how much business came in. And I kept thinking, yeah, it's, it'll go for a month or two that it'll slow down. And then another month or two, it'll slow down. And it didn't slow down until literally around this time last year, around the end of the, the mid and summer of of uh 22 things started kind of going more back to normal the the volume went down and now it's a normal pace rather than a crazy hectic pace but it's definitely a big difference in what uh in what we see is coming through our calls for inspections for real estate purchases 
So if we had the more inventory, you'd have more inspections, right? That's what I'm hearing. That's what everyone's telling me. <laughs> okay. Before you started uh, Pacifico Engineering, what were you doing? Oh, my goodness. All right. So I was an engineer that worked in industry. I worked in manufacturing. That's a whole story. I could go on for that about hours. But um, I worked in manufacturing. I worked as a design engineer, um, worked as a manufacturing engineer, then became an operations manager of a company here on Long Island. Um, actually, was top level at the company running a 100-person manufacturing firm. And then uh, I decided I just I couldn't take that business anymore. And I went, started doing home inspections um, and got out of the corporate world and was able to make that transition pretty well. Did you study um, uh, structural engineering? Well, I went to Stony Brook um, and there the disciplines they had were very kind of generic. There was mechanical engineering, there was electrical engineering, there was chemical engineering. That was at the time I went back in the Stone Ages. Mm-hmm. So the um, I studied mechanical engineering, but we had a good background in structures, things related to structural engineering and civil engineering, and then also some electrical engineering as well was thrown in there in the education. Well, um, you know, it's interesting what you were saying about that. Uh, um, do you sign off with a lot of architects? I know when I did a uh, a redo on my my home, um, the architect didn't want to sign off of, on it, and he got a uh, a structural engineer to sign off. Has that happened to you a lot? Oh, yes. Yeah, I work with quite a few architects. Now, many architects will do their own structural work. They are trained in it. They're competent. They're capable. They can do a fine job. But sometimes things get a little tricky and they might be a little out of their comfort zone. Mm-hmm. Um, so it does happen, you know, at any given time. I probably have two or three jobs in my office that are with architects that are coming through for us to do either a whole house structural design or maybe just certain sections of it. Like one of the things involved is this thing called shear wall analysis. So when you design a building, uh, think of a box. So a box, um, if it has all six sides, it's very stiff. Once you take it, if you take two walls away on opposite sides, you can collapse that box with almost no pressure. So the shear wall is how much of that wall can you remove while the building will still withstand what it needs to. So when you get a, like a big wall in a building and you put a lot of doors and windows in it, you're putting a whole bunch of holes in that wall. So some, uh, and there's a specific code requirement for shear wall analysis that if you have a certain amount of holes based on the total area of the wall, you know, you, you don't even have to analyze it. You're just acceptable. But once you get beyond that, you have to actually do analysis and do extra things in the construction to make sure that that wall will not collapse under wind, hurricane, or earthquake loads. That's very interesting. Um, I'm just thinking, like, uh, correct me if I'm uh, wrong about this, but I know like in steel, a lot of times they have a lot of holes in the, like in bridges. Uh, Supposedly that's stronger than having just the that's what I always thought. Is that the case or it's not? Well, it's not technically stronger, but it's probably stronger per unit weight of steel. So it's kind of like a comparison, what, what you're comparing the strength to. So like if you look at an I-beam, 
You know, you think of a large flange, top and bottom, and there's this little web in between. Right. The strength of that I-beam is really in the top and bottom flanges. And the fact that they're connected by the web has them move as a unit. So um, you can put holes in the web to a certain level and very minimally affect the strength of that beam, but really impact how much it weighs by removing material in the right locations. So that's probably what they're talking about. And that's why like an I-beam or even it's sometimes uh, you'll see a C shape as a beam. Mm -hmm. They're very effective because basically a beam is a lot. The, the strength is related to the height of it by a cube factor and the thickness of it by a factor of one. So if you think of a, you know, a one inch by one inch wide beam, it has to say it has a stiffness of one. If you go to a two inch high by a one inch wide, two cubed, which is eight, that's eight times stiffer than a one inch high beam. So by doubling the height, you're making it eight times stronger. If you make it twice as wide, you're only making it twice as strong. So that's it's the geometry. Yeah, I, I love yeah. that, the way you explain it. That's great. Um, just on building codes, you know, I always thought uh, building codes were pretty universal across the board. Uh, residential as whether you're building a, yeah. a one, two family and, and four family or commercial. But that's not the case. Is that correct? That That, that is correct. There are a myriad of codes that are involved when you're taking on a construction project. So most people talk about the building code, you know, what's code, but what's the code requirement? And there are whole different levels of that. And if you kind of go you know, like to codes 101, the basic start is, you know, which code applies. So there are two main codes. There's the building code and there's a residential code. So for most homeowners, residential code, one to two family residential buildings. That's what applies to their building, to their home. Once you're anything other than one to two family residential, there's this thing called the building code. So that applies, realistically, a lot of people think of it, you know, if you build a condo community where you have attached housing, it's not, it's more than two family residential, but it's still a residential building, the building code applies. If you build a skyscraper, the building code applies. So they're, similar in a lot of respects, but there are key differences that are involved in them. So it really depends on what you're doing. Then beyond the building code and residential code, so that's if you're building something new. If you have an existing building and you want to do an addition to it or you want to renovate it, there's something called the existing building code, which basically says, how do you handle a building that's built already? And those buildings don't necessarily meet current code because the codes change every three years. Something always changes in there. Um, so the existing building code basically tells you what you may have to upgrade and what you can leave alone in the existing building. So, uh, and then in the residential code, there's a little appendix that basically applies as the existing building code. So, you know, for argument's sake, if you live in a, an old house that you, you know, we just talked about the shear walls that does not meet the code requirement for shear wall, but you're not changing that wall. You're doing something in another area of the home. 
you're under no obligation to repair it. Uh, sorry, not repair, to upgrade it. You're under no obligation to make that better. So in general, the existing building code says you can maintain what you have. And um, if it breaks or gets damaged, you can repair it the way it was. However, there's another little caveat on there, something called substantial damage or substantial improvement. So there's basically a test of the value of the work you're doing on the building. And if that value exceeds 50% of the value of the building, then that's what you call either a substantial improvement project. And then there are a lot more things kick in that you have to improve. Right. Well, yeah. um, I know you have a pet peeve uh, on uh, houses in Florida, <laughs> especially the yeah. ones uh, that got destroyed, well, I think it was at, uh, yeah. so, so that hurricane. Uh, one of the things that we, we, I mentioned just a few moments ago is that the codes change every three years. And, and why do the codes change? Because people learn more. So there will be something that will happen. And they'll, you know, and the, 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 all the brains in the room will sit down and say, well, we need to change something in the code to make this not happen again, to ensure that it doesn't happen. So one of the big things in the code that changed a little over 20 years ago was the wind requirements. And this thing we were just talking about with the shear walls, that's part of uh, the wind resistance of a building. Um, things that if people have done construction projects in the last couple of years, they'll may have know, know about strapping and uh, hurricane clips and bolting the building to the foundation. So what happens um, and if you if you see a house that's being constructed before the starting goes on, you'll see all these metal straps. They hold the first floor to the foundation. They hold the first floor to the second floor, and they hold the roof to the second floor. And you'll see those. Um, usually they're outside. Sometimes they're inside the building, depending on the construction. But that was done. Uh, a lot of that was implemented after Hurricane Andrew hit. So for, you know, people with gray hair like you and I that may remember back in the late 90s, there was Hurricane Andrew hit and a town it was called Homestead, Florida, was devastated. Like the whole town got destroyed. The houses were leveled. And because of that, they instituted all these wind resistance requirements so buildings wouldn't fall down now my pet peeve associated with this is that the buildings failed not because the code was insufficient the buildings failed because they weren't built correctly so if you take a piece of plywood the requirement is you need to put a nail nails all around the perimeter and then a whole bunch of nails on a certain frequency it works out to about 30 or 40 nails per piece of plywood what they found in Homestead, Florida, a lot of the plywood on the roofs and the walls were held in with four nails or six nails. They just put enough to hold it in place. Then they put the siding and the roofing on. A lot of the roofing systems, um, you know, in the old days before hurricane straps, which are basically metal straps to hold everything down, you did what it was called a toenail. You would drive a nail through the roof rafter into the top of the wall you know, probably one nail either side. So two nails would hold it down at the ridge. You would do, you know, two or three nails, depending on the well, size. I of the hate board. to interrupt you. Yeah. You won't believe this. <laughs> I ran out of time. I'm running over <laughs> again. <laughs> well, 
Let so, somebody get in touch with you, Ralph Pacific. Oh, okay. My phone number six three one. 9880000 or pacificoengineering.com you can get a hold of me talk about codes let me know if you need a building inspected we could design a sanitary system for you you let me know we'll see what we can do to help you or we'll get you to the right person that can you can do the whole ball of wax i love that ralph pacifico it's been a pleasure having you on the program this is john christopher of real life broadcasting here in the village of southampton new york on the only npr station on long island WLIW 88.3 FM. If you have any comments or thoughts, please reach out to me at john.christopher at sir.com. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to Real Life. And don't forget, have an awesome journey. You have been listening to Real Life the program that talks about the people, the places, and the things that are the pulse and heartbeat of real estate in the Hamptons and beyond with host John Christopher, who also created the music for real life. WLIWFM's Delaney Hafner and Kyle Lynch provide production support. Thank you for joining us for Real Life right here on listener-supported 88.3 WLIWFM Long Island's only NPR station, which you can also find on your favorite streaming apps and at wliw.org radio.